0: Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to the proclamation of your word, we do pray that you would open our eyes and that you would also open our ears, that we might receive this word from you. Speak to us now through your servant, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please, I'll open your Bibles to our sermon text, Matthew chapter 28. We'll be reading verses 16-16 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16, 16 through 20. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This morning we have the wonderful privilege of receiving a covenant child into the visible church through the sacrament of baptism. And each time we have a baptism in the church, it is an opportunity to deepen our understanding of baptism and so that we might do what we call improve our baptism, that is live in light of the fact that we have been baptized into the name of our triune God. As we deepen our understanding that this is a sign and a seal of the new covenant, of our union with Christ, and all the benefits that we receive through that union, it only deepens our gratitude for Christ and our desire to live in a way that pleases Him. So even though only one one person will be baptized this morning... We can all benefit from it, both through this deepened understanding of the word of God and through a deeper commitment to walk in the blessing of having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And certainly if there are any here this morning who have not been baptized, perhaps this will also serve as a spur to cause you to seek to be baptized in obedience to Christ's command. And for our sermon, I'd like to look into the origins of baptism, specifically the question, when did Christ institute the sacrament of baptism in his church? Was it by his example when he received baptism from John the Baptist? Or was it by his command when he issued the Great Commission after his resurrection in Matthew 28? Then after we answer that initial question, we'll look at the institution itself and ask, what can we learn from the institution of baptism? What can we learn about baptism from Jesus' command and the context in which it is given? So let's first consider the baptism of John. It is a preparatory baptism of repentance. So was baptism instituted through the baptism of John and Jesus' example of receiving John's baptism? I will see that the answer to that question is no, because the baptism of John was preparatory for Christian baptism. Now It has many similarities to the baptism later instituted by Christ, but it is not precisely the same. And before I show, before I prove this point, I will mention that even among Reformed tradition, theologians of our, our own tradition... They are not unanimous on this question. In fact, I'm even disagreeing with Calvin this morning. (gasps) I I hear the gasps. Please hear me out as I make my points from Scripture. First, note the timing of John's ministry. He was the last prophet of the Old Testament. He did not go out to the nations, but preached repentance specifically to the Old Testament people of God, to Israel. We see that his message and the initial message of Jesus were almost identical. John's words in Matthew 3 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus would soon after this preach, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Mark one fifteen. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah, as prophesied by Malachi, as highlighted by his distinctive dress and diet and as later confirmed by our Lord in Matthew 11, 14. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. John came to prepare the way for the Messiah. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Matthew 3, 3. But John himself clearly distinguished his baptism from the baptism of the coming Christ. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Matthew 3:11. So here we see a contrast between preparation and fulfillment, between the shadow and the reality. Now, a final distinction can be found in the baptismal formula, that is, the actual words said in performing the baptism. There's no evidence that John used the Trinitarian formula in administering baptism. In fact, I would say that we can be certain he did not. While he spoke of the coming one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit, he recognized that he himself did not. Jesus spoke of sending the Holy Spirit in the upper room discourse at the end of his ministry, the latter chapters of the Gospel of John, and then he instituted baptism with the full Trinitarian formula in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. John, however, had a simple baptism of repentance, not the Trinitarian baptism later instituted by Christ. There's one more interesting piece of evidence that I believe confirms this thesis, which comes from the book of Acts chapter 19. When Paul arrives in Ephesus, he encounters some disciples who had received the baptism of John and they seemed to know something about Jesus, but they hadn't been fully taught. In fact, they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Certainly, they would have known about the Holy Spirit if they had been baptized by John into the Father and into the name of the Son and into the Holy Spirit. But clearly, they had not been. So after Paul instructed them, Even though they had already received John's baptism, they were then baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, interestingly, the text here only says into the name of the Lord Jesus, not the full Trinitarian formula. But surely this is shorthand. They were baptized into the one name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This also highlights another important point. Normally, we would say that a person is to be baptized only once, Ephesians 4, 4-6. There's one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your, your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The sacrament is not to be repeated unless, for some reason, you were baptized in a way that is not considered valid. So, for example, say a person was baptized as a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. We would consider that an invalid baptism, not a Christian baptism. And so when that person comes to Christ, he would receive his one Christian baptism. But here we see the same thing in Acts 19. These disciples had received the baptism of John, and there's nothing wrong with that. That was a good thing. But now they receive from Paul their one Christian baptism. So we must distinguish between John's baptism of repentance, the forerunner, the foreshadowing, and the baptism of Christ. This brings us to our second point this morning, the institution of baptism. And here we must go to Matthew 28, our sermon text. So let's read again beginning in verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. In these opening verses, we see that the disciples have, for the most part, except for those few who doubted, they have come to the full realization of who Jesus is. He is their divine savior, both God and man. And he is worthy of their worship. And so that is what they do. They bow down and they worship him and they give him the glory. And he, of course, offers no objection, for he knows, too, that he is worthy of their worship. This little worship service is then followed by what we know of as the Great Commission. We usually focus on this as a summons to worldwide missions. And of course, it most certainly is that. But this morning we will focus on the institution of baptism, to, institution of baptism found herein. So, but first, let's consider the authority of the resurrected Christ in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." The Great commission and the institution of baptism are both grounded in, founded upon the divine authority of Jesus Christ. This is a partial fulfillment of the prophecy of one like a son of man from Daniel 7, which in God's providence I'll be preaching on tonight. Come back this evening. Prophecy says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Christ's authority is universal. It extends over both the heavens and the entire earth. Soon after giving this great commission, he will ascend to sit at the right hand of his heavenly father, and from the throne he will reign until he comes again on the last day. Of course, he already had authority. Even before he humbled himself and came down and took on flesh, and he had authority during the days of his ministry, before his death and resurrection. You might recall how after he preached the Sermon on the Mount, the people recognized that he taught with greater authority than they were used to from their scribes and teachers. He exercised authority when he cast the moneylenders out of the temple courts, and he certainly exercised authority when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. And now, as the resurrected Lord and Savior, he has authority and he wields it in a new way. As the Davidic king who has been crowned and is about to be seated on his heavenly throne. And it is in this authority that he now issues his great commission to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. Now, let's read again verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, here we'll focus on the sacrament of baptism as instituted by our Lord. What can we learn from the words he uses here? Now, these particular words are traditionally called the baptismal formula. Because a minister repeats these very same words in each baptism, saying, I baptize you into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So first, to be baptized into a person's name is to enter into a covenant relationship with that person. We have two examples of this in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 10, he gives the example of the Israelites when they crossed the Red Sea. And he writes, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 1 Corinthians 10.2 In other words, Paul is saying that through their experience of passing through the Red Sea under the protection of God's presence in the pillar and cloud of fire, they were entering into covenant with God with Moses as their covenant mediator. Now, that covenant will be formalized later at Mount Sinai. And we know it by Moses' name. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. Now, we can contrast this verse with another statement that Paul makes in chapter 1. As Paul is addressing the divisions that were plaguing that church, he says, he writes, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Now, Paul goes on to say that he baptized very few of them. And of course, they were not baptized in his name. No, they received Christian baptism into the name of the triune God. A Paul may have been the instrument God used through whom they heard the gospel, that they should not be disciples of Paul or Apollos or any man, but rather disciples of Christ. This is a bit of a side note, but when people join our church and they fill out their information sheet, some people know exactly who baptized them. And perhaps it was a minister whom they loved and respected. And it's a wonderful memory. But for others, they can't even remember the exact date or who did the baptism, and that's okay. Because as Paul is pointing out here, baptism is not about the person who administers it, but about the triune God who exhibits his grace through the sacrament. No special bond is created between the minister and the person baptized, except perhaps for some fond memories. There is, however... A spiritual bond created between the person baptized and the God into whose name they are baptized. That is our main point here. For you are baptized into a covenant relationship. For the Israelites, they were baptized through the Red Sea into a relationship with God, with Moses as their mediator. Now we are baptized in the name of the triune God. Into the new covenant which has been sealed by Christ's blood. As we noted before, baptism is described in the book of Acts as being into the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not to say that the baptismal formula given by Jesus with the triune name was not used, or to say that the other persons of the Trinity are excluded, but it does put a special emphasis on the fact that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, and that baptism is a sign and a seal of our union with Christ. And union with Christ is just another way of saying entering into a spiritual, covenantal relationship with Christ. Now, Paul highlights this union in Romans chapter 6 when he writes, Do you not know that all of us Therefore, baptism is a sign and a seal of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And as Paul points out, the implication of that is that we have died to our sins which have been washed away. And we are called to walk in newness of life. But baptism doesn't only bring us into this new relationship with Christ. Because Christ is also the head of his his body, the church. And perhaps that's how you are more accustomed to thinking about baptism as the sacrament through which one is received into membership in the visible church. In fact, that's how I introduced it earlier this morning when I was making the announcements. And I hope you can see how these two are intertwined. As you are united to Christ, you are also united to his body. As John Murray writes, it is because believers are united to Christ in the efficacy of his death, in the power of his resurrection, and in the fellowship of his grace, that they are one body. We see that Peter put the Great Commission into practice right away on the day of Pentecost, for after preaching the gospel, when the people were cut to the heart and they cried out, What shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, for you and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Acts 2, 38 and 39. And so as they are baptized, they enter into Christ's kingdom, the church. If there were any doubt it's made clear that this is the sacrament of entering the church in the following verse where we see someone was keeping track. Acts 2 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so we have seen that baptism into the name of the triune God works to bring a person into covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And into relationship with Christ's body, the church. Second, let's focus on the name. You'll notice that Jesus is very careful about his wording. It is the one name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. While there are many places in the New Testament that teach about the Trinity, this verse contains one of the clearest and most succinct statements about God's triune nature. He is one God in three persons, one name, and yet Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while I've emphasized that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant and takes on special prominence in baptism, we enter into relationship with this one God who is yet three. The Father is our heavenly Father, Christ is our Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. Also, while we distinguish between the baptism of John and Christian baptism, we are certainly to recall Christ's baptism by John. For in Christ's baptism, we see a revelation of all three persons of the Trinity. Of course, Jesus is present as he is baptized, We also see the Spirit descending upon him in the form of a dove, and the Father speaking from the heavens as they are opened up, declaring that this is his beloved Son, with whom he is well pleased. And while there are no such miraculous manifestations of the triune God at baptisms today, we are baptized into a relationship with this very same triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, While our relationship with the Father is not exactly the same as that between the Father and his only begotten Son, we are the adopted children of God. And because your sins have been forgiven and you have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, he truly says of you, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Similarly, while the Holy Spirit has not descended upon you in visible form, whether the form of a dove or of a tongue of fire like at Pentecost. He has taken up residence in your heart. He has granted you spiritual gifts and spiritual fruit, and he is working to sanctify you to make you more like Christ. And so you have been baptized into the one name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is Christian baptism as instituted by Christ in the Great Commission. Now, third, let's consider the context of baptism, missions, and discipleship. On getting to baptism, I jumped over the first part of verse 19 Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And after disciple making and baptism comes teaching, verse 20 teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus is giving this great commission to his 11 remaining disciples whom he he will now commission as his apostles. His disciples are commissioned to make more disciples who will then make more disciples and this will repeat so that the church will grow and fill the whole earth. A simple definition of a disciple is a follower after Christ. Of course, the means of making disciples is to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and all who believe will take up their crosses and follow Christ as well. But these second-generation disciples and all who come after that third and fourth and fifth generation, they will not have the privilege of learning from Christ firsthand. And so he gives this charge, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And baptism cannot be separated from this charge of nurturing Christ's disciples, what is often called the work of discipleship. And notice that Jesus' command is not a mere passing on of head knowledge, but rather teaching to observe, teaching that is to be put into practice. Think of how Jesus walked with his disciples, how he lived with his disciples, how he taught them firsthand, how they were to walk and live. And we'll see this this morning fulfilled in the baptismal vows that Lydia and I will be taking, along with the vows that the congregation will be taking to assist us in this work. We will, be, we will be promising to raise our son to the best of our ability with the help of God's grace, to follow the Lord and to observe all that he has taught us. And in this, we are not alone. Jesus concludes the Great Commission with a great promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice that he does not say, I will be with you, but I am with you. Even though he ascends to heaven, he never leaves us and he will never forsake us. We are spiritually united to him and he is present with us through his Holy Spirit dwelling within us. As we look back over the passage, we can see that there are four alls in this passage. Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has sent his disciples out to make disciples of all nations. We are to teach disciples to observe all that he has commanded us. And he is with us always, literally all the days, to the end of the age. So as you observe a baptism this morning... It's always appropriate to reflect on your own baptism, to remember that you have been baptized into a covenant relationship with the triune God. Your baptism is a sign and a seal of the new covenant through which, by faith in Christ, your sins have been washed away and you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Through faith, you have been adopted into God's own family and you have received the spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. And by baptism, you have been received into Christ's body, the church. You are a member of the household of faith, entitled to all the privileges, but also charged with all the responsibilities of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that means that baptism is just the first step of the journey. You must also be learning to observe all that Christ has commanded to his disciples. As his disciple, you must be daily dying to yourself as you take up your cross to follow your crucified and risen Savior. But even this challenge, and it is challenging, it does not overwhelm us. For we remember the words of our Savior who also said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ is with us, and he will never leave us and never forsake us. All authority has been given to him, and he is reigning over all, working all things for the good of those who love us. And he has given baptism as a sign and a seal to illustrate and to confirm these realities not only to our minds, but to our hearts as well. And so let us strengthen our hearts in him as we witness the blessing of the sacrament this morning. Shall we pray? Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for all the glorious truths that He has revealed in His coming, deeper truths about who you are, the Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what you have done in sending your Son to be that perfect sacrifice, giving His life on the cross, bearing the curse that we deserve for all our sins, all our transgressions that we could never pay, but he has taken it all. And thank you, Father, that you have given this sign and seal to show us the gospel made visible, the washing away of our sins, the entering into this relationship uh, with you through Christ, our mediator, both God and man. We pray that as we witness this morning, this baptism, we would have a deeper realization of all that you have given to us in Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would walk away this morning with a deeper love for you and a deeper faith in Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.